technology. In our pursuit to conquer Mother Nature, to reduce her laws to their fundamental parts and reassemble them to serve our needs, humankind is triumphant and relentless. Throughout the latter part of the 19th century, these efforts achieved unprecedented results, unleashing a tsunami of change that historians now refer to as the Second Industrial Revolution. The First Industrial Revolution had seen improvements in transportation, steam power, and manufacturing, which had elevated the scale of economic productivity and propelled America through the period of territorial expansion. But these gains had leveled off by the mid-1800s. The Second Industrial Revolution, beginning in the latter half of the century, was a phenomenon of entirely different proportions, powered by the extraordinary synergy of steel, coal, and railroads. The Bessemer process, introduced in 1856, provided, for the first time, a method to mass-produce steel, one of the most useful materials ever created. Superior to wrought iron in every way, it was stronger, lighter, and now cheaper to produce. It unlocked a universe of new possibilities, and access to that universe was granted by the railroads. Where iron rails had once lain, easily damaged and requiring constant replacement, new rails of steel appeared. They could carry vastly more weight, more frequently, and yet last ten times longer. They were ridden by new locomotives with steel wheels and steel axles, hurled through the air by steel engines capable of withstanding the incredible pressures and temperatures of steel boilers and steel turbines. They could haul longer trains further faster. With steel, the cost to build and operate a railroad plummeted, and with it, the price to move goods and people. Demand went through the roof. Freight and passenger traffic skyrocketed, and so did the rate of new track construction. During the 1880s alone, more than 75,000 miles of new track were laid across America, a pace unseen anywhere else ever in history. The timing could not have been better, for it coincided with a period of scientific discovery and invention that drove new innovations at an unparalleled pace. Advancements in the fundamental understanding of electricity and magnetism had led to breakthroughs in telecommunications, giving us the electric telegraph and allowing instant communication from one coast to another. In 1876, it was supplemented by Alexander Graham Bell's marvelous apparatus, the telephone. Chemists uncovered new fertilizers that allowed once fallow land to produce dazzling quantities of new crops. Improved techniques for precision machining and tooling allowed for new standards in interchangeable parts. The mathematical contours of the screw propeller could be machined to fabulous tolerances, delivering the first modern steamships. Bigger, lighter, and more powerful, these steel-clad behemoths, like the railroads, carried more, further, and faster and extended the transportation networks across the seas and into distant markets. 
the internal combustion engine allowed Carl Benz to build the first commercially viable automobile in 1885, just as the possibilities of Charles Goodyear's vulcanized rubber were leading to the first pneumatic tire, dovetailing beautifully with new and superior road-building techniques. Enormous new construction machines drove civil engineering projects of unimaginable scale, gigantic steel bridges a mile long, and towering steel buildings that seemed to scrape the sky. Thomas Edison's electric light bulb was unveiled in 1879 and found widespread use when the first high-voltage power station came online in 1891. Electric power opened up new frontiers in manufacturing, leading to the first true assembly lines. Powered by coal and oil, it was the dawn of the age of mass production, when staggering volumes of all manner of goods and contraptions were pumped out of factories at a breathtaking pace. But there was one thing that was produced in more quantities than anything else. One thing that more than coal and oil was the fuel that powered this enormous machine. It was beans. It was bones, it was bacon, it was clams, it was dough, it was money. Welcome to the story of Miami. Episode 19, Tycoon. When the Transcontinental Railroad was completed in 1869, the six-month trip from New York to San Francisco was reduced to only six days. As the railroad and telegraph network grew in the following decades, the nation's economy was transformed from countless little local markets to one giant bazaar as big as the nation. Suddenly, A seller in Milwaukee could find a buyer in Savannah. Goods that would have perished long before reaching their destination could be safely shipped thousands of miles away. With the arrival of a railroad connection, itty-bitty towns in the middle of nowhere suddenly found the entire nation at their doorstep, waiting eagerly to buy their local goods and to sell them the entire catalog of American merchandise. No longer were Americans solely reliant on their neighbors for all things big and small. No longer did a failed crop mean starvation. Technology and the corresponding lower costs to produce and move goods led to an exponential boom in economic output. Beginning in the 1870s, the United States experienced the most rapid economic growth in its history, as opportunities were created the likes of which the world had never seen. Businesses boomed, and money flowed everywhere, generating enormous wealth. But this was no utopian society. Those who owned the means of production, the patents, the factories, the railroads, the land, prospered, while the rest clamored to keep up or be crushed beneath the advancing wave of change. With innovations arriving at blinding speed, America struggled to adapt, 
and society was thrown into a chaotic and agonizing turmoil as a flood of new capital came to be concentrated in the hands of the few. Alongside the technological innovations and infrastructure, a revolution in business and organization took place as well. As the networks of railroads grew ever larger and more elaborate, the logistic and operational complexity of running the trains, of keeping everything moving without losing track of the train cars and the goods they carried, compelled whole new methods of management. New forms of scheduling and dispatching, of allocating and assessing, of accounting and bookkeeping, created a huge need for skilled and educated workers. The first modern office jobs, the division and subdivision of corporations into specialized departments, the Byzantine bureaucracies of middle management, for the first time drove the emergence of a significant middle class in the nation's northern cities, where towering office buildings began to spring up. But even as the standard of living was elevated for millions of Americans, millions more found their traditional trades automated away, replaced by low-skilled and low-wage jobs, which appeared on a massive scale. With industrialization, a love affair with the beautiful efficiency of machinery had spilled into the human domain, and laborers became just another commodity, another cog in the machine. The demand for labor in the factories, construction sites, and slaughterhouses drove massive migration into the cities, and drawn to the promise of work, immigrants from all over Europe. Italians, Poles, Austrians, Hungarians, Russians, Greeks, and Irish, along with an influx of Chinese railroad workers, poured into the nation, swelling the ranks of the labor force crammed into block after block of overcrowded tenements that could barely hold them, poor and immigrant populations clogged the streets and strained every service, forcing a reinvention of the urban landscape. Cities scrambled to undertake monumental new infrastructure projects, pumping vast sums into unprecedented sewage, paving, and electrification systems, and implementing the nation's first streetcar and subway systems. In the crush of bodies, many laborers lived and worked in horrific conditions, exploited at every turn, and coerced into accepting miserable wages. Many became trapped in inescapable spirals of debt, forced to send even their young children to the factories to support their families. Countless workers died on the job, only to be immediately replaced by some other desperate soul. Organized crime gained a foothold as helplessness led many into the arms of gangs. Others turned to the emerging unionization movement, banding together to bring all work to a halt until they got better treatment. Strikes and riots became an almost constant phenomenon in every city in the nation, leading to countless outbreaks of violence and bloodshed in the streets of New York and Chicago and Pittsburgh. Between wealthy corporate shareholders greasing the palms of local politicians to fight regulation and break up the unions, and union bosses consolidating power and delivering whole blocks of voters to whoever served them best, corruption was rampant, and gargantuan political machines took hold, the likes of which would have made William Gleason blush. 
the eternal struggle between labor and capital became supercharged, laying the groundwork for the populist, anarchist, and socialist movements that would rack the world in the early 20th century. Many years later, the period from roughly 1870 to 1900 would come to be known as the Gilded Age, a tongue-in-cheek slight that contrasted with the true Golden Age. It has been derided as a period when colossal wealth and materialism were held up in exaltation, a thin gold veneer masking graft and corruption, inequality, and the wretched suffering of millions, as the old structure of society was ground up by the force of an unstoppable deluge of new capital. Who were these capitalists who amassed all the money, these titans of industry who sat at the top of all this? They were the monopolists, whose iron grip on the gears of industry allowed them to bend lesser businessmen to their will. This was the age of Andrew Carnegie, the baron of U.S. steel, and Cornelius Vanderbilt, the tycoon of the New York Central Railway. It was the time of California Railroad boss Leland Stanford, the banker Andrew Mellon, the mining and smelting magnate Meyer Guggenheim, and the financier J.P. Morgan, who laid Wall Street's foundations. They were members of a small club of men who grew to own a quarter of all the nation's wealth through luck, courage, brilliance, dedication, and ruthlessness. From their perch, they looked down upon the nation like gods playing a game of chess. More than a century before Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk, these were America's first tech billionaires, whose millions, adjusted for inflation, matched or even exceeded the richest Americans today. Their names live on in the corporations they built and in the universities, museums, and other leading institutions they erected in their spare time. But there was one enterprise whose success outmatched all the others, and was looked to by the nation with a mixture of admiration, envy, jealousy, fear, and hatred. Standard Oil, the Mac Daddy of monopolies, the devourer of competition, was formed in 1870 by John D. Rockefeller and Henry Flagler. Today, it is the name of Rockefeller that is most widely recognized, for he was the most titanic of all titans of industry. By most estimates, Rockefeller is still the richest American to ever have lived, who, at his peak, oversaw 1% of the entire nation's GDP. But it is his friend and accomplice, Henry Flagler, whose story is so central to our own. Henry Morrison Flagler was already middle-aged by the time he made his first fortune. He had been born in 1830, in the tiny town of Hopewell, New York, and had already shown an aptitude for sales by the time he was a teenager, making money working in his uncle's shop. As a young man, he had worked for his stepbrother, Stephen V. Harkness, building a successful business distilling whiskey and trading grain in Bellevue, Ohio, and had then gone into business for himself, 
selling salt to the Union Army during the Civil War. But the salt venture was a disastrous failure, which he later said taught him always to do his own diligent research before investing in any business plan. It was only a short time later, after paying off his debts and moving to Cleveland, Ohio to start anew, that the 36-year-old Flagler was approached by the much younger Rockefeller. The two had actually met years earlier, before the war, when Flagler was in the grain and alcohol business in Bellevue. Back then, Rockefeller, only a teen, was already showing great promise working as a bookkeeper for the commissioned grain merchants Hewitt and Tuttle, and the two had developed a mutual respect for one another. In the intervening years, Rockefeller had moved to the port town of Cleveland, where he had astutely foreseen that the railroads were poised to undercut Cleveland's advantages for the grain business. But a new industry had caught Rockefeller's attention. Technical advances in the extraction and refinement of crude oil into kerosene had coincided with the discovery of a huge oil field in western Pennsylvania, only a short distance from Cleveland. At the time, kerosene was still a staple, required to provide lighting throughout the nation, and oil refineries were small businesses, scattered all over the place. Rockefeller realized that the arrival of the railroad in Cleveland, bringing with it a direct connection not only to the oil fields, but to the large markets in New York, put the city in prime position to dominate the refining industry. By 1865, he had partnered with chemist Samuel Andrews, an expert at the technical aspects of refining, and plowed everything he had into a new oil refining venture. Working tirelessly over every detail of the enterprise, Rockefeller soon saw his investments paying off, and began searching for partners to help him take the business to the next level. When his old friend Henry Flagler moved into a room in the very same Cleveland office building, Rockefeller recognized the shrewd and fearless businessman he had known before the war. By now, both men knew a great deal about business, and they quickly became inseparable. In 1867, Flagler became a partner in the oil venture, forming the company Rockefeller, Andrews, and Flagler. And in 1870, the business was reorganized under the name Standard Oil Company. From here, Flagler and Rockefeller scaled aggressively, quickly becoming the biggest oil refiners in the world. But they saw clearly that this was still only the beginning. As the volume of crude oil and kerosene they moved ballooned, they leveraged their bargaining power to pit the railroad and canal companies against each other. The transportation companies fell over themselves in their race to offer huge discounts for the privilege of moving standard oil products, lowering the costs even further. With such low prices, smaller refineries simply could not compete, and facing destruction, these competitors were forced to sell out. One by one, Standard Oil gobbled up their competitors. At this point, historian Matthew Josephson writes, quote, They could finally dictate market prices on crude oil, stabilize the margin of profit at their own process, and do away at last with the dangerously speculative character of their business, end quote. 
Sidney Walter Martin added, quote, The movement was like a tidal wave throughout the oil sections, especially in Cleveland, engulfing every refinery in its path. A few firms balked, but were later forced to give in, usually being made to accept smaller sums for their properties because of their procrastination, end quote. With so many honest businesses flattened beneath the onslaught, criticism of Flagler and Rockefeller's methods began to mount. But there was nothing that could be done, and the company charged ahead, leveraging their growing market dominance to undercut their competitors, fix prices, and consolidate control in ever more creative and innovative ways. Virtually invulnerable to market forces, the growing enterprise drew both the awe and the ire of the nation. They produced so much oil that they dwarfed the needs of America and expanded into global markets. In 1879, Standard Oil was responsible for 90% of all refining done in the United States, and fully 70% of this oil was shipped overseas. At its height, the Standard Oil Empire oversaw 4,000 miles of pipeline, 5,000 tank cars, and over 100,000 employees in America. Although Rockefeller grew to greater stature in the annals of American history and was undoubtedly responsible for a great deal of Standard Oil's innovations, he maintained until his death that it was Flagler who propelled the venture to such great heights. In a 1910 interview for Everybody's Magazine, when asked if incorporating Standard Oil had been his idea, Rockefeller reportedly replied, quote, No, sir. I wish I'd had the brains to think of it. It was Henry M. Flagler, end quote. Flagler had secured his fortune and his legacy. He had achieved all a man could dream to achieve. But unbeknownst to him, his most notable accomplishment was still many years ahead of him, far from the oil fields and pipelines of the North. And in 1878, he took his first fateful trip to Florida. All this took place a long way away from Miami which remained a scarcely occupied enigma to most Americans. The dramatic events of the final decades of the 19th century, the Union riots, the cramming of tenements with destitute immigrants, the transformation of the cities into labyrinths of machines and masonry, and the amassing of unheard-of wealth by the titans of industry were a different world from these peaceful shores. Instead... Gleason, the Brickles, and the residents of Coconut Grove and Lemon City read of these distant developments in the occasional newspaper and watched over the years as the sails disappeared from the boats that visited the bay and were gradually replaced by the black smoke of steamers muscling their way up the coast. But there was one frequent visitor to Dade County who we have yet to introduce— whose presence completes the fateful link between these quiet shores and all the riches of the Gilded Age. Her name was Julia DeForest Tuttle. 
Born Julius Sturdivant in 1849, her parents were Cleveland residents Ephraim and Francis Sturdivant, the same Sturdivants who left Cleveland for Miami in 1870 alongside William and Mary Brickle. As we learned in episode 16, when they got to Biscayne Bay, Ephraim Sturdivant had fallen in with William Gleason and became a prominent politician in Carpetbag, Florida, while living on the northern shores of Biscayne Bay. Julia did not relocate with her father. By the time of his move, 21-year-old Julia was already married to Frederick Tuttle, whose family owned a profitable iron business in Cleveland. They had two children. Francis and Henry, and the affluence of Frederick Tuttle's family afforded them a place in the upper crust dining rooms of Cleveland as it became the epicenter of the booming oil industry. The enormous influx of capital brought to the city by Standard Oil benefited everyone, not in the least the Tuttles, who had close ties to Rockefeller. In fact, you may have already picked up on the source of their connection, for as we mentioned earlier, it was the family's original grain brokerage, Hewitt and Tuttle, that had given a young John D. Rockefeller his very first job. Julia ran in the same circles as Rockefeller, they attended the same church, and she occasionally solicited him for charitable donations, which he was happy to spare. Julia made her first visit to her parents' tropical haven in 1875 accompanied by her two young children and her friend Mrs. Davis. Refined ladies of society traveling without their husbands, they caused quite a stir. One local bachelor wrote in his diary, quote, Mrs. T, very young, and both, her and Mrs. Davis, quite good-looking and lively, pleasant ladies. It is a very great pleasure to meet with such ladies way down here in this desolate country and I appreciate their society. Mrs. Tuttle is younger, full of life, but not very discreet and seems to favor J.W. Ewan's attention. Rather unbecoming conduct in a married lady. She is unaffected, though, and possesses a stout heart, I think. End quote. Taking in the bay from the balcony of her parents' home in today's Miami shores, Julia began a relationship with South Florida that would develop into a love affair. She returned to Cleveland and her life in that burgeoning city's upper crust. But when her husband fell ill with tuberculosis, she brought him to Miami to recuperate, first in 1880 and then again in 1882. Perhaps she had indeed taken to J.W. Ewan, or perhaps it was the storied Fort Dallas property over which he presided which most struck her fancy. For on their last visit, the Tuttles lodged at the old Fort Dallas Longhouse rather than the Sturdivant home. It was an extraordinary moment in Miami's history when, among the rooms in the Longhouse, one housed the Dade County Courthouse, one housed the Peacocks, who were in the midst of planning their new hotel, and one the Tuttles. When Frederick Tuttle died in 1886, Julia discovered to her chagrin that her husband had not left his financial affairs in good order. A comfortable upper-class life in Cleveland was no longer assured. Left to raise her children alone and her life thrown suddenly into disarray, she was forced to call upon her own resourcefulness. And resourceful she was. 
She was an astute observer of business, who had seen success up close and knew the value of hard work. She converted her four-story Cleveland mansion into a ladies' boarding house and tea room, which kept her afloat as she turned her attention to prospects in Florida. There, she had seen, was a place brimming with opportunity. And by now, Henry Flagler was doing some very interesting things with railroads and hotels in St. Augustine. She wrote to Rockefeller, asking him to solicit Flagler on her behalf with an offer to be head housekeeper of his new hotel. But the offer was rebuffed. And so Julia looked instead to Biscayne Bay and formulated her risky plan. She was not interested in the North Bay estate that had been bequeathed to her by her parents, nor in the up-and-coming communities of Coconut Grove and Lemon City. No, she had her heart set on Fort Dallas, a picturesque property already rich with history and a stunning landscape. There, her friend J.W. Ewan, who had studiously maintained the property on behalf of the Biscayne Bay Company, was happy to finally offload it, and he gladly arranged to sell all 640 acres to Tuttle. Tuttle put everything she had into the purchase, sealing the deal in 1891 and leaving Cleveland for good. Stout-hearted Julia Tuttle, with her children Fanny and Harry, moved into Fort Dallas, and on the banks of Biscayne Bay, they fit right in. Tuttle hosted dinner parties at Fort Dallas and became a well-liked member of the community, respected among the Brickles, the Peacocks, and the many pioneers of the Grove and Lemon City. It may seem strange to you, she wrote to a friend in Cleveland, but it is a dream of my life to see this wilderness turned into a prosperous country. Julia Tuttle had seen something many had seen before her. A beautiful place unlike any other that was destined for greatness. She was far from the first to try to make that vision a reality. But Julia had something no one else had had. Impeccable timing and a direct line to tycoons. <laughs> 